Hey, my friend, welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My name is Lori Seitz. I'm an entrepreneur, mentor, founder of Zen Rabbit, and your instigator in saying, fuck being fine. This show is for those of you who are done living with the dumpster fire and are ready to find the tools and courage to transform, to step into more success and fulfillment in both your personal and business life. You're in the right place for stories of self-discovery, gratitude, and connection. And to help you strengthen that connection to your own inner guidance, you'll find each episode has an accompanying meditation. Now let's get into it. It's not every day you meet someone who's lived on a glacier in Patagonia. Chris Shembra has done that and a whole lot more on his roller coaster hero's journey. He's been a kayak tour guide, he's run a theater company, he's created a pasta sauce, he's won accolades and awards for his work. He also has non-suicidal self-injury, depression, jail, and rehab on his resume. Chris is the Wall Street Journal best-selling author of Gratitude Through Hard Times and Gratitude and Pasta. USA Today calls Chris their gratitude guru. He's a founding member of Rolling Stone Magazine's Culture Council, and he sits on the executive board at Fast Company Magazine. Chris is the founder of the 747 Gratitude Experience, and he's used the principles of gratitude to spark over 500,000 relationships around the dinner table, serving Fortune 50 CEOs, Olympians, Academy and Grammy Award winners, Super Bowl champions, as well as thousands of other regular people who are not as well-known names. I'm honored to have had a conversation about gratitude with Chris in this episode, the impact it has on you as the giver and the recipient, where gratitude fits in the discussion of addiction, and its importance as a pro-social act. We're also talking about ingratitude, because in all honesty, Those of us who talk and teach about gratitude are not immune from falling victim to it. Chris openly shares his shocking cry for help when he was riding on the top of the world less than nine months ago. Before we get into the conversation, I've got to give you a little behind the scenes of what happened when we were recording this episode. Chris and I were going along when he was suddenly kicked out of the online studio. He came back in and picked up where he left off. Then he got kicked out again. Despite having a strong internet connection, this happened eight times. He finally gave up and sent me an email that just said, I'm done trying. So we wrapped it up. So many thanks to Chris for being such a great sport and to my editor, Chad, for piecing together the Frankenstein audio tracks. Today's episode is sponsored by Zen Rabbit. If you'd like to find peace of mind amidst the chaos and no matter what's going on around you, get on a complimentary call with me. In less than 30 minutes, you'll get insight on any issue you'd like to bring to the table. And you'll leave the conversation with clarity and renewed energy. Find the booking link in the show notes or text me at 571-317-1463. Hello and welcome to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. My guest today is Chris Shembra, and I am so excited to have you on my show. It's been months I've been waiting to have you come in here. 
And here we are. And we've already had so much fun talking backstage. Lori, I think it's a wonderful uh, testament to your ability to practice what you preach and showing me patience. But I think that this interview couldn't be coming at a better time, uh, not only for for my journey, uh, but for some of the things I've learned about myself in the months since pushing back this, uh, you know, this interview date. So I think the world works in mysterious ways and we were meant to be recording today. Absolutely. I completely subscribe to that. Everything happens in the exact right time. Yeah. Let's start out by my asking you the question, what were the values and beliefs that you were raised with that contributed to you becoming who you are? Hmm. So there were some positive ones and some negative ones. Um, you know, the positive ones were um, the values of community and philanthropy and um, courage and generosity. I had, um, I grew up in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, two parents in a household. So I, I grew up, you know, on the beach, on an island, uh, on a small island, uh, you know, 45, 50,000 people. And, um, you know, our, my uncle's the first mayor, our parents, you know, were early developers. Um, you know, their footprint is ingrained in that community. And so we welcome those tourists, hundred thousand of them a week at a time with open arms and showed our, our generosity and asked them good questions and helped them really fall in love with our people and our island and our integrity. And, um, a lot of, got to meet a lot of really neat people, a lot of really successful people got to, you know, spend some time on Hilton Head and, uh, you know, I think uh, those those values rubbed off on me in uh, hopefully a pretty positive way. Um, there are also some negative values, you know, that that uh, I kind of assumed at a young age. Perfectionism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I think uh, perfectionism can be part of your sage, you know, strength. Right. But can it can also be a saboteur? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think a lot of people saw my energy, my creativity, my uh, uh, zero fear of being uniquely my own, regardless of the cost. And, and that made them very afraid. And so a lot of people were scared of my outbursts, my energy, my making them just embarrassed. And they just wanted this perfect, perfect life. It was out of love. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of people's childhood insecurities themselves manifested themselves into me and, uh, you know, sent me down a pretty dark, uh, path early on. So, so pros and cons. Did you feel stifled? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you looked at little Chris, you know, this little guy, this little cute kid with the preppy clothes, taking the beach photos and doing all those kind of, you know, white kids stuff in a beach in South Carolina. Um, you know, we had the perfect life, you know, and, and, and here comes the miracle baby that, you know, my parents spent nine years trying to have me. Wow. All the IVFs and the misses and this, I was like the only child that came out of 10 years of miracle. And I was 
rambunctious and loud and energetic and just maniacal. And I would try to create every moment of my life. And, you know, that scared the crap out of people around me because they just wanted me to be this, you know, perfect, obedient little kid to, you know, keep our family name alive in the community. And just around that time, a guy by the name of Ned Hallowell, who's now a friend of Mm -hmm. mine, wrote a book called Driven to Distraction. Yes. And it was like a groundbreaking book in ADHD. And what it inspired moms across America to do was create these like mom groups and then they'd send all their kids to the right doctor and the doctor would prescribe them a specific thing. So I was that kid, right? They, they put me, you know, most of my early childhood memories are of being at school in a room by myself with a one-way mirror because I would distract all the other kids. Right. So let's put him alone. And then, yeah, and then let's put him alone in a doctor's office while my mom's crying in the couch on the other side of the wall, and the doctor's on that side of the wall just observing me, playing with puzzles and doing Legos and clicking buttons on a computer. And the result of that was um, ADHD medication. Now, most kids are prescribed like 10 to 20 milligrams of this kind of stuff. I was prescribed 86 milligrams. Wow. Starting at the age of five. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So... I don't remember 15 years of my childhood from 5 to 20. Because most you were of it's drugged. A big old blur. I was drugged. I wasn't there. Wow. I was doing the motions, right? The academic All-American, the Prudential Merit Scholar, the, you know, st- you know student athlete, whatever. Doing the perfect Model thing. Because that's what you were doing supposed to everything. do. But I never dreamed. I had less creative outbursts. I just, I wasn't me. Hmm. When did you get to become you? Um, so they took the medicine off me on my 31st day of rehab. So I checked into rehab on May 14th, 2008. I was 20 years old at the time. Hmm. I had just entered into my first rehab at the age of 20 years old, right after my sophomore year in college. And I checked into rehab with a 30-day supply of my medicine. Okay. And on the 31st day, uh, it happened to coincide with me doing a four-day solo, which is like, hey, split the kids up for four days in the middle of their rehab and let them just live on the road uh, in the middle of the woods in the wilderness in the middle of the woods right. yeah and in, in the wilderness well, and so on that on that 31st day which is actually my first day of solo um i received a post-it note in my mailbox that i made out of a piece of you know a rock and a couple logs and it said no medicine for you today smiley face uh-oh. I haven't taken, you know, that drug ever since. Did you check yourself into rehab or did somebody else do it for you? So I was of the legal age that I could have said no. What happened was my dad came and got me from college. And there was a whole host of things that went wrong during that time and the time leading up to it. And on the car ride home, you know, as far as I was concerned, I mean, I like... 
I picked them up drunk from the airport. I mean, this is just a small week at a glance. Mm-hmm. I picked them up drunk from the airport during the week of my final exams. Uh, my car was getting towed as I'm getting his bags mm. inside. He comes out and saves the car from getting towed. The next night, we go out to dinner. I drive him on my motorcycle that I convinced my Bulgarian adopted brother to buy me on his 10th credit card Okay. two months prior. And I drive my dad to the restaurant on my motorcycle. And then we eat dinner. He goes back to his hotel. He says, don't drink and drive. So I drink and drive. Of course. I take a girl home to my house on the night before two final exams. And instead of staying up all night to study, I stay up all night with a girl. In the it at like three AM I leave the girl at my place and I go to pass out in the driveway of another girl's house, drive my motorcycle there. Dad shows up to my own apartment at eight AM. I'm not there. Girl's in my bed. Where's Chris? He drove drunk again to his ex girlfriend's house. Wow. I skip my two final exams to be with that girl who was already in my apartment. So I just stayed in my apartment, skipped the two final exams, car ride home f- with my dad. He hands me pamphlets that he had already prepared. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, look, I don't want you going up to New York City this summer to do the real estate internship. I was going to stay at the NYU dorms and work for a real estate company. He said, uh, we, we'd like you to spend some time going away. And just kind of finding yourself again. And so it wasn't a force, mm-hmm. right? I was, I was above the legal age, so I could have made my own choice. But I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll spend two months in the woods and I'll come back and party my ass off junior year of college. Well, did you know it was rehab or did you just think it was like wilderness camp? <laughs> well, it... I knew it was rehab. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they didn't have to like trick you into going. Like we're no, sending you to camp, year, Chris, and you're like, wait, no, a, this isn't a, what I was expecting. A year and a half, a year and a half of all the right moves led up to that. Okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, my whole my whole college life was like an experiment. It was you grow up in a bubble, and then all of a sudden they send you off to college and you like reinvent yourself and you like, I don't know, you can call yourself Bob for fuck's sake right. if you want. Right. Like you just like do new things. Because that's what college is for. Yeah. Yeah. But you went to college in New York? In um, Florida. Oh, okay. Rollins College. Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. So when you came, you said rehab the first time. So where? So I went from rehab to rehab to rehab and then back home. So wilderness, uh, wilderness program that was invented for convicts. Okay. Literally. And there's a great Rolling Stone article that I wrote about this for a column at Rolling Stone. There's a whole thing about like the woods and peanut butter and rehab and all that shit. You have that in your so, book too. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then I went f- to rehab for five months on essentially a, like a 20-acre piece of property, maybe like 80-acre piece of property in the middle of the woods in the state of Washington that was like a five-star luxury hippie compound with like just 
like live-in chefs and nice counselors and 20 guys under the age of 25 just trying to figure their shit out. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I went to uh, a sober living in Los Angeles. And so, uh, yeah, did that for a couple months and then moved back to Hilton Head. Was that the period since the the show is called, you know, fine is a four letter word. Is is that the period where you were saying everything was fine, but it wasn't fine? Or is there another point? That's an example. Yeah, that's a great, well, there's, don't we all have those moments like every day? We we do, Um, (laughs) we do. No, it's like, you know, it's like the hero's journey, right? The, yeah. uh, one, uh, you know, a hero's journey. You could pick up the book, The Hero's Journey. You can read about it and like say, oh, yeah, I've had like one hero's journey through my life. And look, here's all the telltale signs. Or you can have like a hundred of them a day. Right. Um, but It's um, the roller coaster hero's journey. It's the roller it's coaster. It's not just the one arc that happens in Hollywood movies. Yeah. No, it's like tons of stuff. But yeah, you know, I, I thought my... I thought rehab, I was like fine and I was going to be this like really good, perfect little Alcoholics Anonymous kid. And so I was like doing that for 11 and a half months. And then I just like got wicked drunk and was like, all right, fuck those last 11 and a half months. I'm going to keep drinking, but I'm going to figure out like how to fix the rest of my life Mm -hmm. because alcohol is just a symptom. Okay. And so that's, yeah, that's what you did. So, yeah. So I, I, um, after rehab, I, I went, I went to work as a kayak tour guide for an outdoor adventure company in Hilton Head Island and fell back in love with nature, fell back in love with storytelling, fell back in love with meeting new people and serving them and connecting them and asking them questions and telling them stories and all these great things. And and that like really made me come alive. Okay. I mean, I really found my gift and did that for a little bit. And then one day picked up and moved down. I wanted to test my luck. And so I moved down to live on a glacier in Patagonia for a couple months with about 16 people through the National Outdoor Leadership School. And, you know, every day was was an adventure, uh, right? We had one goal, don't die. Yeah. And don't let your other partners die. Good goal. You know, it's kind of extreme, you know, weather down there. And so that taught me resilience and courage. And it also exposed my limitations. It exposed some of my laziness. It exposed a lot of things. When did you become a gratitude guru? Uh-huh. Took a long time for that. My gratitude journey started in July of 2015. Was it something that came out of having been in rehab all of that time? Like, because they teach, no. they talk about gratitude in recovery, right? Of course, but, but I wasn't listening. But you weren't. Okay. All right. You You had to. <laughs> You were waiting for the just lesson going through a little the motions. Gotcha. Just going through the motions again, you All know? Right. No, I, my gratitude journey started in July of 2015, um, some like seven years after the kind of rehab started. Uh, if you looked at my life, again, if you looked at my life in July of 2015, you would have seen that same like five-year-old to 20-year-old Chris. Going through the motions, having a good time, 
Yeah, achieving great things. Yeah, surrounded by people that loved me. Yeah, people were saying positive stuff, accolades, awards, all that jazz. I was running a theater company at the time. So I was like fully invested in theater. That was like our shtick. We're traveling all around the world, living the high life, having a good time. But I was in Italy. I'd just come back from producing a Broadway play in Italy, back to New York. And I was like, oh, man. Oh, no. This ain't it. I'm a complete fraud. But at least I had the realization, right? Earlier in my life, I didn't even have the realization that I was a complete piece of shit fraud, right? But then in July of 2015, I said, God, life looks really good on paper, but it don't feel good on the inside. I was lonely, unfulfilled, disconnected, insecure, nervous, cautious, anxious, overwhelmed. I mean, you're probably watching this right now and feeling a similar sort of way. I mean, like really, take a pause for a sec if you're listening to this. Now, I want you to ponder this simple question. What's one word that honestly describes how you feel right now in the moment? Like, don't bullshit me. Wow. You're probably quarantining alone, or maybe you've got screaming children in your ear. done quarantining now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But... um, yeah. I don't know, like, I don't know, no. you probably, like, your husband's cheating, or maybe your boss Wow, those are great ass. thoughts. No, <laughs> I don't know, like, I just want to be real. Yeah. I want to hear what you're really going through out there, because here's why. You and I have a lot in common. You probably got a great job, probably making cash in the bank, but are you actually happy? Have you actually processed the shit from your past? Are you just going through the motions? That was me in July of 2015. Like Italy had awoken all of that in me. Mm -hmm. And when I got back to New York, I said, I got to change this thing quick or else I'm going to die. Literally because I've got the suicide depression jail rehab on the resume. Mm -hmm. If I don't change things quick, I'm going to be that kid again. Was this the first time that you were consciously recognizing that as opposed to just stuffing it down and just going to have some more drink and totally yeah totally and and in that space you know knowing full well i gotta act quick i thought what was it about my time in italy that really kind of saved my life or changed my perspective on everything was it how they walked no was it how they talked no Was it how they honored history kind of was it how they ate food specifically amongst community Yeah, okay, light bulb went off. Community. I came back home and I said, I'm going to invent my own pasta sauce recipe, just like the Romans do. (laughs) And and I invented one. And I was like, oh my God, I should feed it to people to see if it's good or not. And I decided to host a dinner party. July 15th, 2015. 15 of my friends came to my home that hardly knew each other. And they didn't know they were set to be guinea pigs. Exactly. We worked together to create the meal. We drank a ton of wine. We ate some pretty good pasta sauce. And then miraculously, at one point in the evening, I looked around at the dinner table and I said, y'all, I got a question. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, 
that you've never thought to thank, who would that be? And Lori, I saw the most amazing stories come out of those people's mouths. Some of them gave gratitude or credit and thanks to their third grade teacher, their grandpa, their spouse that was sitting right next to them, whatever. Some of them talked about never thought to thank the time they got bullied in high school, Mm -hmm. the time their daughter got cancer, the time their boss fired them. Both the positive and the negative, the stories were real. Mm -hmm. And so we kept on doing those dinners. Did you know beforehand that you were going to ask that question? Or did it just come, you were sitting there having dinner, and all of a sudden this question pops into your head and you spit it out? I got into such a flow state of consciousness, which we write about how Mm -hmm. flow in our book, and our friend Stephen Kotler is the great expert in flow. Uh, I got into such a flow mindset around that dinner table. I got to access my super conscious Mm -hmm. mind, my true self, and pluck out some question that my conscious mind had never thought about, but my super conscious mind said, (laughs) let's fuck them. Let's do it. And everybody cried. Yeah. Right? And so we kept doing these things. We kept gathering these people, whether it was in small groups or big groups of a couple thousand, and it just became our shtick. Yeah. But we were always distracted away from gratitude. We always said, it's our pasta sauce that's doing the heavy lifting. It's the dinner table that people are coming back to. It's the blah, blah, blah. We are like, just like barely paying attention to gratitude. Mm. And, you know, we were growing our business. We were doing these for team building and client engagement. We were speaking. We were doing all this kind of stuff. We wrote our first book, Gratitude and Pasta. We were on top of the world and we were going across the country. And then all of a sudden, COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And, fuck, COVID ripped away the dinner table and the pasta sauce away from us. And at that moment when COVID hit, I was like, oh shit, now what happens? What are we going to do now? And we said, what was so good about us pre-COVID? Dinner table, pasta sauce, gratitude. Remove two, and you got gratitude. Still got gratitude. Always gratitude. You still got gratitude. And so what we did was we hired a few new people. One of the people was a research coordinator from the University of Pennsylvania. was just graduating with like neuroscience and machine learning and all this stuff. And she would go out and grab things from the internet about the science, the psychology, mm-hmm. the, the ancient Stoic philosophy of gratitude. Yep. And she'd send them to us every day. And so what we had been doing intuitively around gratitude for like five years suddenly was backed by science. 
science. Oh, wow. Okay. So you didn't even know about the science when you started doing no. that. Oh my gosh. Hey, I was yeah, like, I've been into this hey, stuff this for years. Welcome to the club, Chris. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is cool. So, so then we got to be really good at, at the, the hard skills side of gratitude. And, uh, and then eventually that's what we became, you know, known for. And, you know, it's been a great journey ever since. Yeah. So adjust and move forward. Is that the, yeah, that was the I big mean, lesson there? Well, so great things can happen when you acknowledge that you're in a really dark place. Mm. Because when you're in a really dark place, the only move is up. When you're in a really dark place, the only next move is to learn something new to get you out. And once you start that learning process, that that humility, right? If if we're being honest, going into 2020 and everybody being like, oh my God, your dinners make everybody cry and you're so good at that. And like, yeah, that's like ego. Mm -hmm. That like leads to superiority complexes and entitlement. And I already know everything there is to know about this shit. So why would I need to learn more? And then like life hits you and you're like, oh my God, I've got so much to learn. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Yeah. And so we just started gobbling up new information, new techniques, new facilitators, new people, new clients, new this, new that, new this, and just freaking rocketed, rocket shipped. Did you bottle the sauce and send it to people so that when they were on these virtual conversations, they can still be enjoying the pasta sauce. That, that was part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That was part of it. Not, not all of our clients, uh, bought the pasta sauce as well. I mean, in the last, since the start of COVID, we've served about 30,000 people through our virtual gratitude experiences. Only about, I don't know, I got to check the numbers, probably 3,000, probably 3,200 people have opted to send the sauce to their, you know, people. But the sauce so is a thing still, now, right? Like it's a thing that you sell. It, it, it's a thing we sell. Yeah. Yeah. It's on our website. Um, but, um, you know, and everybody was looking for like the cocktail kit to send out <laughs> and like, you know, all that pandemic stuff. Right. Um, now that people have seen that it's not about the sauce at all. It's actually about gratitude. Now we've just stopped talking about the sauce. Well, okay. So it's not about the physical sauce that you eat, but it's the sauce, the special sauce it's is the, gratitude. The special sauce is gratitude. Yeah. So here's the interesting part of the story is, right, 2020 hits, we pivoted to virtual. 2021, we're on top of the world, Lori. I'm talking about like tons of clients, tons of attendees, tons of revenue, tons of accolades, a dozen people a day messaging in how our virtual gratitude experiences save their life, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I get to Q4 of 2021 and I'm riding on top of the world. Everything looks good on paper. Mm -hmm. And then at 4.30 p.m. on Thursday, December 30th, 2021, I'm on a call with one of our clients, Lisa Penn, an executive at SAP. And she says, Chris, you don't look too hot. Can we... Uh, 
do you want to end our one-on-one call a little bit early? Like, oh, that's odd. I'm like known for being able to show up against the odds, Mm -hmm. ready to connect. But I was like, okay, I trust your intuition. Hang up. Well, Molly and I had a lot to celebrate that night, so we went out to dinner. We just bought a new home. She just got a new job. She was flying out early the next morning, New Year's Eve, to go be home with her family for some health stuff. And I was like, let's go celebrate. Well, at that restaurant, somehow everybody likes to buy us drinks when we go out. (laughs) And um, so everybody's buying us drinks, and we're having a good time, and I drink a little bit too much. And I pick a fight, and I say some inappropriate things. And I get home, I feel like the biggest piece of shit in the world. Like a manipulator, an abuser, a psycho, a fraud, an imposter, a monster, whatever. And I go into the kitchen and I take out a kitchen knife and I run it right across the old arm. Zoom. Zoom. Mm. Not in this way. I've Have you been, done this before? I've been a cutter all my life. Before this incident? Never no. this deep and that close to the source. For everybody who's listening, I wasn't trying to end mm. my life. It wasn't suicidal ideation. It was a cry out for help. It's called non-suicidal self-injury. And I've been doing that all my life. And You probably know people around you that cut or burn or self-mutilate, self-harm, pick at their hair, whatever. It's, it's all a form of it. It's just that this time was a little bit deep and it was a little bit too close to the point of no return. Mm. You can interpret that how you will. I'm very lucky to be alive. Was Molly still there? Molly's with me. Okay. Molly's in the room where it happens. Oh my God. So... She flies out the next morning to Detroit to be home with her family. And I'm, which was actually a good thing because I'm left to my own devices in our apartment in New York City. And for the next number of days, you know, it's just mush. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd look at a lemon and I would cry. I would... I would watch a Nancy Myers movie and I would cl- I would re- I would drink water and I would cry but one day I called my friend Scott and I said Scott like this is what I just did this is what's going on what where am I broken what do I got to change he said dude I mean and I've known him since college he said dude you just got so much good things going on in your life. You couldn't see the clearing through the forest. Mm -hmm. You're appreciating none of it. And it was right there in that moment when I said, holy shit, I'm not grateful. Mm. I've preached it. I've taught it. I've promoted it for all these years. And yet somehow, I'm the ungrateful man. I became the most recent victim of ingratitude. This is not 
uncommon though, because I know that you had a conversation earlier this month, I believe, with our mutual friend, Julie Boyer and her podcast, uh, yeah. uh, Wake Up With Gratitude. And she's taking the summer off because she's burned out. She talks about gratitude and being grateful and being mindful and self-care. And she wasn't doing it herself. And you're saying the same, like you're talking about gratitude all the time and you weren't practicing it yourself. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, I just want to bring it up because it just means that we're human. Oh yeah. We, um, yeah, we're, we're imperfect, um, likely hiding behind a mask, uh, a lot of more shit deep down deep. That, that we all need to work on. Yeah. All. Yeah. So talking about gratitude is awesome and sharing it with the world because I believe that you and I and all of us who are talking about the concepts of gratitude and teaching other people are helping create this ripple effect mm -hmm. that improves the world. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's <clears throat> not always easy to practice it even ourselves. Oh, yeah. I mean... We often underestimate the impact gratitude can have on us. And we often underestimate even the impact gratitude can have on the recipient. And we overestimate the perceived feelings of awkwardness or the barrier to entry. Yeah. Feeling that it might make us look weak or that people might take advantage of us if we're grateful. So a lot of people just don't practice it. Mm -hmm. Nor are we good at receiving it. You know, in the year 63 AD, this ancient dude named Lucius Annius Seneca, commonly known as Seneca the Elder from the great ancient Roman Empire, uh, wrote a book called On Benefits. And in the beginning of that book, he states that the greatest plague to Roman society is that we neither know how to give nor receive a benefit. Mm. Out of all the vices common in today's, that society... Nothing is more common than ingratitude. And he believed that the ungrateful man is like responsible for all the bad shit in earth, like thievery and homicides and tyrants and adultery. And like, like that's the plague of the ungrateful man. Yeah. Um, it's like the worst thing you can be in the world. I would, I don't want to say argue, but I would add that I think it's gratitude and community. The two things that you have done of course. such an amazing job of, of creating that contribute to all of those things, the combination of ingratitude and lack of community. So um, a great TED Talk uh, by a man named Johan Hari from years ago, who his most recent book is called Chasing the Scream. Um, it's really good. But he, um, he once said in his TED Talk, that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's human connection. Yes. And most people practice gratitude in an isolated, self-reflective practice. Mm -hmm. Right. They yep. open up a journal, journal and they write right. what they're grateful for and they put it in their bedside table. Yeah. This is what I talk about too. I'm like, you can have a what gratitude we, journal, but don't just make it. it, it yeah, what that's we, only part of it. What we preach in our entire book, there's an entire section Gratitude is pro-social. Yes. And when practiced in a pro-social way, 
it feels good three ways. It feels good to give. It feels good to receive. And it feels good just to observe. Yes. Like a, a simple story that we tell in our book is the story of our friend Diana. Um, she comes from Tamil, uh, kind of South Indian Tamil descent. And, but she grew up in America. So she's like removed from that culture. Mm -hmm. But when she goes over for weddings, she practices gratitude in, in, in a way that is, is unique. So in, in Tamil culture, there is no word for like gratitude. There's just like the lowering of the, the eyes, the kissing of the feet, the bestowing of honorific titles, uh, all those kind of things. And so when she goes and says hello to her grandmother, who's bestowed her so many benefits in this world, she bends down and kisses her grandmother's feet at a wedding. And when she bends, when she bends down and kisses the feet of her elders, everybody around her cries. Mm-hmm. Not because they're giving the gratitude, but they're observing her really authentic and heartfelt pro-social action of gratitude. We were just talking about this before we got on this interview. I was running the one of the sessions of my Fuck Being Fine program, the small group program. And this is exactly what we were covering in today's session mm. was how when you share gratitude, you feel good. The other person feels good. And anybody who's watching on yeah. top of that, anybody who now hears about it, like people who don't have yeah. like they just heard your story. They don't have to be there observing in person her and her grandmother, they're hearing from this show. Yeah. And now they're feeling good too. Um, Sarah Algoe out of the University of North Carolina has a very good study about this called the witnessing effect, witnessing Mm -hmm. theory, where she actually like literally proves that uh, the the pro-social benefits of gratitude in a dyad, right, a a Mm two-way and in group setting. Um, so she's like the queen of this exact thing, the witnessing theory, witnessing effect. It's a 102 page research study that comes out of the university of North Carolina. And we write about it in our book. Yeah. So we, we've been referencing the book throughout this, this chat and it's the latest one. You said your first book was pasta. Gratitude, gratitude and pasta. Yeah. The second book is gratitude through hard times. Yeah. And I'm I'm not 100% through it yet as we record this, but I am well through it and it's so good. Like Thank just, you. What's, I, I just what's one of I'm, your I'm favorite like parts? highlighting every uh, every other sentence is highlighted. What's what's one of your uh, favorite highlights? Oh man. Um I mean all the research is in one place. Like I've I've heard a lot of this research before, but it's here all in one place. Um You know, Okay. So using gratitude to heal broken relationships. Ah. That was, that was, that really hit home. I, I feel like if you can go to gratitude, no matter what's going on, like you're not. Uh, and then the next chapter after that was about healing, uh, like finding gratitude for your enemies, right? Yeah. Making enemies into friends. Those two pieces are so powerful because if you can go to gratitude there for a relationship, maybe that isn't, is no longer, but you can still find the gratitude for it Mm -hmm. or for, 
again, it's so relevant to what's happening in our society. Can you understand other people and find gratitude for them? Doesn't mean you have to agree with their opinions or their beliefs. You can still be grateful for their they're sharing like, with you or if, whatever. If you're listening to this, watching this, uh, one of the chapters that we talk about is called Addressing the Empathy Deficit, which yeah. like odds are, uh, like empathy is the art of imaginatively stepping into the shoes of another person, understanding their feelings and perspectives and using that knowledge to guide your action. Mm-hmm. So odds are you're not doing it. And odds are the person on the other side of the aisle from you is not doing it as well. And what happens when two sides of the aisle don't practice empathy, they create echo chambers and silos and massive entitlement. Mm -hmm. My belief is better than your belief or your belief is better than I'm right, you're wrong. That's essentially it. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't change the other person. You can't change their belief by like fighting their belief. And so what you have to do is invite them with humility. And one of the ways of turning entitlement into humility is gratitude. When you acknowledge, when you think that your position is the smartest position in the world, you develop ego. That's entitlement. You think you're smarter than everybody else. The opposite of that is acknowledging the benefits you've received and learned from others going at that with a posture of humility, realizing you have so much to learn from other people's perspectives and stepping into a conversation that way. And so in order to destigmatize the friction between two opposing ideals, you can find one small thing to be grateful for in the other individual, mm-hmm. right? Let's say you're feuding with your sister and your sister is uh, an anti-vaxxer, um, pro-life Republican, and you are a vaccinator, pro-choice Democrat. I'm just using, it could be Jewish, Israeli, or Israeli, Palestinian. It could be black, white, tall, short, north, south, whatever. Right. You're probably at odds with your sister for a number of years. And there is no amount of liquid that's going to be able to fix that. But you know what? When's the last time you actually reached out to your sister and say, you know what, Francis, I don't think I've ever told you how grateful I am that when you were 13 and I was 11, you invited me over to your friend's house a couple times. And it's actually where I picked up my love of record players. And now I've got a record player that I get to share intimate dances with my partner every night. And every time we do that, I think of you and how grateful I am for you as a big sister. Hmm. That's going to literally bring families together and at least destigmatize the conflict enough to then maybe, just maybe, have a civil discourse. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's yeah. Resolving the heart power. of conflict. I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, throughout a hundred thousand years of conflict. The truth is in order to see the change you want to see in others, first you have to make the change within yourself. I told you how this episode got pieced together. 
There were so many questions I wanted to ask Chris that we didn't get to because of all the disruption, including his hype song. Hopefully, I'll get him back on another show or in a special event where we can get to them. Here are the key takeaways. Number one, when you're in a really dark place, first, acknowledge that you're in a really dark place. Then, understand that the only way out is to learn something new. Number two, empathy is the art of imaginatively stepping into the shoes of another person, understanding their feelings and perspectives, and using that knowledge to guide your action. Most people don't do this well. You can't change someone else's belief by fighting it. Realize how much you have to learn from the other people's perspectives and step into a conversation that way. Number three, gratitude is an active practice. It's up to you to take responsibility for being grateful and to hold yourself accountable when you find yourself being ungrateful. If you don't intentionally take moments to appreciate the good in your life, you can easily and unknowingly become a victim of your own ingratitude. Number four, gratitude is in large part also a social practice. Even though it's important to self-reflect and have moments of solitude, Gratitude and the well-being that comes from it is even more powerful and real when shared with others. It benefits all parties involved, from those receiving to those giving and to those learning about it as observers. To fully access the pro-social benefits of gratitude, remember to practice it in community as well. Number five, practicing gratitude can save relationships. People distanced by conflict can be brought closer together again by connecting through their appreciation of common ground and shared experiences. To help reduce friction caused by disagreements, focus on and express how those shared experiences, no matter how small, have positively influenced your lives. Number six, it's funny how the last thing Chris says before he got kicked out of the studio for the last time was a perfectly timed mic drop. In order to see the change you want to see in others, first, you have to make the change within yourself. Thanks for being here and subscribing to Fine is a Four-Letter Word. Please share this show with a friend or a colleague. If you're feeling especially generous, leave a review so other people like you can discover the show too. It's on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and all the major podcast directories. You can join me on social too. On Instagram, it's zen underscore rabbit. You can find links to the other platforms at zenrabbit.com. Before you go, remember to take a moment to think about what you're grateful for today. Lastly, you can find this week's meditation queued up right after this episode. And if no one's told you this week, I'm proud of you. Take good care.